Hello residents, my name is Mike Estefan and I thank you for joining me today on this episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's episode is going to be all about the ischemic EKG. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors over at Pearson Rabbits. As I'm sure you know by now, Pearson Rabbits is my own personal disability insurance broker. They helped me find an own occupation disability insurance policy that fit my needs. During this process, they presented my file to numerous insurance companies and received offers from three different companies. Then they broke down each company's offer policy down into plain English for me to understand and gave me a recommendation on which they thought was best for me and my situation. It's really important to know that the brokers at Pearson Rabbits do not receive any commission or any bonus for selling one policy over the other. They truly have your best interest in mind. Don't wait until it's too late. Check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule your consultation appointment with Stephanie Pearson or one of the members from her team today. Don't forget to mention EM Clerkship. And now back to the episode. Keeping with the theme of this month's case, we are going to talk about the ischemic EKG, first covering STEMI equivalents, and then moving on to talk about a few other non-conventional ischemic patterns. Now, I can't stress this enough. It is one thing to learn about STEMI equivalents by just listening, but you need to see these abnormalities on EKG. I would highly recommend searching for an image of these findings on Google as you listen. So let's get started. A STEMI equivalent is exactly what it sounds like. It's an abnormality seen on EKG that is not an ST elevation MI pattern, but it requires the same sort of response. At the very least, a phone call to interventional cardiology, if not activation of the cath lab, I also personally think that it's very important to be able to recognize these patterns on shift without having to look at reference material. As an attending, I probably review at least 25 EKGs over an eight-hour shift, sometimes even more, and most of the time I get interrupted while I'm in the middle of something else to read these EKGs. So having these patterns memorized, I personally think is pretty darn important. So you have the ability to recognize these abnormal patterns on the fly and catch them before the patient ends up waiting in the waiting room for six to eight hours for labs. Now, there are six distinct STEMI equivalent patterns that you need to be able to recognize that I'm going to talk about today along with three other additional signs that are strongly suggestive of active ischemia, but aren't necessarily automatic trips to the cath lab. We'll start with the STEMI equivalent patterns and end with the other three signs of ischemia. The six STEMI equivalent patterns that you need to be able to recognize include number one, posterior myocardial infarction, number two, right ventricular myocardial infarction, number three, Wellens syndrome, number four, D Winters T waves, number five, the ST elevation in AVR with diffuse ST depression pattern, and number six, the modified Scarbosa criteria in the setting of left bundle branch block. Now let's break these down. Number one, posterior myocardial infarction. 
So these are most commonly found associated with an infarction of another wall, but they can occur in isolation. So when you're handed an EKG with a posterior MA, you should immediately be able to at least recognize that something is wrong. You will see pretty deep ST depressions in V1 through V3, but mostly in V2 and V3, which really are representing anterior reciprocal changes. What's important to recognize is that you will not see any ST elevations unless you get an EKG that has posterior leads. And when you get that EKG with posterior leads, any ST elevation greater than half a millimeter in the posterior leads, which are V7, V8, and V9, would be diagnostic of a posterior MI. And for reference, leads V7, V8, and V9 are the posterior leads. They're essentially mirror image of the leads V4, V5, and V6, except on the patient's back instead of their chest wall. Number two, right ventricular myocardial infarction. So isolated right ventricular myocardial infarctions are extremely rare, but about 30% of inferior MIs will also involve at least part of the right ventricle. And determining whether or not a person has right ventricular involvement in the setting of an inferior MI is actually pretty clinically relevant to the ED. So you have all probably heard the old adage, don't give nitro to an inferior MI. That actually isn't technically accurate. For accuracy, it really should be don't give nitro to a right ventricular MI. The RV is extremely preload dependent, and decreasing preload with nitro can cause big problems if the RV is infarcted. Because about 30% of inferior MIs also have RV involvement, the saying got generalized to all inferior MIs because of the possibility of RV involvement. Now, to diagnose an RVMI or RV involvement, you will usually see ST elevation in V1, which kind of makes sense as V1 is a right-sided lead, in addition to the usual inferior MI findings. If you want to be thorough, however, you can check the right-sided leads, that is V4R, V5R, and V6R, which should also show ST elevation in the setting of an RV infarction. Patients with RV infarctions, again, are very preload dependent, and so they tend to be very fluid responsive if they are hypotensive. Number three, Wellin syndrome. Wellin syndrome is an abnormal T-wave reperfusion pattern seen on EKG that is indicative of severe proximal LAD disease. Typically, the abnormalities are seen in an asymptomatic patient who had recent onset of chest pain, hence it being an abnormal reperfusion pattern. Now, there are two subtypes of Wellens syndrome, Wellens type A and Wellens type B. In both scenarios, you're going to be looking at leads V2 and V3. Type A Wellens syndrome is characterized by large biphasic T waves in leads V2 and V3, whereas type B Wellens syndrome is characterized by symmetric, deeply inverted T waves in leads V2 and V3. I think of it kind of almost looking like a well. The deeply inverted T wave is a well, Wellens syndrome, you get it. Now, I have a clinical pearl here for you. The clinical pearl is that these patients should not be admitted for a cardiac stress test. 
as this may precipitate infarction. They need a cardiac catheterization for diagnosis and are at very high risk of an acute LAD occlusion in the following days or weeks. Number four, D-Winters T-Waves. This is a relatively new STEMI equivalent. The term was coined in 2008, and it is seen in about 2% of acute LAD occlusions and is an indication for immediate cardiac catheterization. All of the findings are in the precordial leads V2 through V6. You are looking for this characteristic pattern that once you see once, you will probably not forget. The pattern is ST depression that is upsloping into very large, tall, and symmetric upright T waves. Again, you guys gotta Google this. A picture is really worth a thousand words here. Number five, the ST elevation in AVR with diffuse ST depression pattern. Now, obviously there's no eponym here. The description of the pattern is the pattern you see. You see isolated ST elevation in AVR with widespread diffuse ST depression. Out of the six STEMI equivalent patterns, this pattern is by far the most common that I've seen in the ER. The important thing to know is that clinical context is everything, and 97% of the time, this pattern is not a STEMI equivalent. Let me explain. This is what we call a strain pattern. So there are three different contexts where you will see this pattern. The first one is severe myocardial strain. In your super sick patients, your patients who are in septic shock or are critically hypoxemic or are in AFib with an RVR in the rates of 150, 160, etc. That is by far the most common scenario you will see this pattern and it is not a STEMI equivalent. Similar to this, you can see this pattern in patients who have mild myocardial strain, but they have underlying multivessel coronary artery disease. An example of this would be your patient who had a cath last year, has about 70% occlusion in multiple vessels, and presents with urosepsis, but they're hemodynamically stable. Now, the third clinical scenario, which is by far the most rare, is the scenario where this would be considered a STEMI equivalent. And in this scenario, this pattern represents either a left main occlusion or a proximal LAD occlusion. And it's going to be somebody who's presenting in ACS. It's going to be your classic chest pain story. It's not going to be somebody who's febrile and tachycardic. I mean, certainly you could have more than one thing going on at once. But classically, if somebody is coming in with a left main or proximal LAD occlusion and you see this pattern, they're gonna have a good story for ACS. One of my attendings in residency always used to say that these are almost never STEMI equivalents because the patients who come in with this clinical scenario of it being ACS usually come in coding because it's it's usually either a proximal LAD or a left main occlusion and it knocks out a huge amount of myocardium. So I realize I got a little rambly there, but to summarize, when you see ST elevation in AVR with diffuse ST depression and the patient is presenting with a story concerning for ACS, this is a STEMI equivalent. Otherwise, it is most likely evidence of myocardial strain, and patient may end up with a type 2 and STEMI, but there's usually something else going on in that scenario. And last but not least, 
the modified Scarbosa criteria in the setting of a left bundle branch block. Now, for years, a new left bundle branch block used to be considered a stemming equivalent pattern. However, it was found that this had very poor specificity and oftentimes was just not accurate. So nowadays, we use something called the modified Scarbosa criteria to determine if somebody is suffering from an infarction in the setting of a left bundle branch block. The modified Scarbosa criteria will have you evaluate for three specific findings, and if any one of these findings are present, it is considered to be positive for being a STEMI equivalent. Now before going into these three criteria, I find it helpful to think about the normal morphology of a left bundle branch block. Normally, there is something called discordance going on between the QRS complex and the ST segment. That means usually the QRS direction is opposite the direction of the ST segment. That is, they are discordant. So if the QRS amplitude is net negative, then there's usually some ST elevation associated with that. If the QRS direction is net positive, there's normally some ST depression associated with that. That is what you see in a normal left bundle branch block. Now the modified Scarbosa criteria, again, are three criteria, and it is considered positive if any single one of these is met. The first criteria is concordant ST elevation in any lead, meaning in a lead with a positive QRS complex, there is also ST elevation. Number two is the presence of concordant ST depression in leads V1, V2, or V3, meaning in V1, V2, or V3, if there is a negative QRS complex, there is also ST depression. And number three, is excessive discordance between the ST segment and its preceding S wave. And more specifically, an ST to S ratio greater than 0.25 is considered positive. So the way you calculate this is by drawing a line on the isoelectric line, and that is your TP segment. So draw a line on the isoelectric line. Then you measure how deep the S wave travels below the isoelectric line. And then you also measure how elevated the ST segment is above the isoelectric line. Then you take your measurements, take the measurement for your ST segment, divided by the measurement for your S wave, and anything greater than 0.25 is considered positive. Calculating this is actually really easy and much easier than it probably sounds listening to me explain it. So please check out our website or check out Google Image to see exactly how you measure this. It makes sense when you see it. And with that, those are our six STEMI equivalents. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are three other key findings that you should know that aren't necessarily STEMI equivalents, but are atypical findings suggestive of ischemia. These three are the isolated T-wave inversion in AVL, the hyperacute T-waves, and the new tall T-wave in lead V1. The first one, which I think is the most common one I've seen personally, is the isolated T-wave inversion in lead AVL. This is one of the first signs of ischemia in an inferior MI and occasionally in a left anterior descending occlusion. 
Sometimes it's the only abnormal EKG change. And I have seen numerous cases where this has been the only ischemic change in patients with elevated troponins and NSTEMIs. Number two is something known as hyperacute T waves. Now, these findings are usually the first finding that will be seen on an EKG in the setting of an occlusive MI and will be preceding any ST changes. A hyperacute T wave is typically described as a large, broad-based T wave that is large in size relative to the preceding QRS complex. One of my favorite lecturers, Dr. Amal Matu, likes to say that if you can fit that preceding QRS inside its T wave, then that is a hyperacute T wave. And lastly, the new tall T wave in V1, sometimes abbreviated NTTV1 for short. This is what it sounds like. It's an upright tall T wave in lead V1. Now normally V1 is a right sided lead. So normally there's either a flat or an inverted T wave in V1. But studies have shown that a new upright tall T wave in V1 is a marker of early ischemia and should be considered the same as a hyperacute T wave. Now let's summarize real quick. Our six STEMI equivalents include number one, the posterior myocardial infarction, and again, we're looking for ST depressions in V2, V3 here, or ST elevations in posterior leads. Number two, the right ventricular MI. This one is associated with inferior MIs, and we're looking for ST elevation in V1, or in the right-sided leads V4R, V5R, V6R. Remember that RVMIs are preload dependent. Number three, Wellen syndrome. Here, we're looking at V2 and V3, and we're looking for either large biphasic T waves, as seen in Wellens type A, or large, deeply inverted symmetric T waves, as we see in Wellens type B. Remember, Wellens type B, the T waves look like wells. Number four, De Winters T waves. Here, we're looking at the precordial leads and we're looking for an upsloping ST depression that has a characteristic tall, symmetric, and upright T wave. Number five, ST elevation in AVR with diffuse ST depression. Remember here that 95% of the time or more, this is not a STEMI equivalent and there is some other pathology driving this change. However, if the patient is presenting with signs and symptoms of ACS, this could represent a left main occlusion, and in that case would be a STEMI equivalent. And number six, finally, the modified Scarbosa criteria in the setting of a left bundle branch block. So here, we're looking for one of three criteria, again, concordant ST elevation in any lead, or concordant ST depression in V1, V2, or V3, or finally, excessive discordance in any lead. And finally, real quick, we'll end with the three cannot miss atypical signs of ischemia, including the isolated T wave inversion in AVL, the hyperacute T waves, and the tall T wave in lead V1. And that is all I have for you guys today. 
To maximize your learning for this episode, as I've already stated, I highly recommend looking up each of these morphologies on Google Image Search, either after you listen to this or while listening to this. As always, feel free to email comments, questions, feedback, or any case ideas that you might have to my email, and that is mike at emclerkship.com. And until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.